listening to Good Morning, the podcast talking all things grief with honesty and humor. Welcome back to the Good Morning podcast. Hi, Im. Hey, mate. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm excited for this chat today. Oh, I am so excited for this chat today, guys. We have got a very special guest for you today, and it's on a topic that we know impacts so many of you in our community. We have talked about it before with Claire Bidwell-Smith, but we wanted to delve deeper into anxiety, what it is, how it impacts us, and we got Anxiety Josh, his name's Joshua Fletcher, uh, on the podcast today, and it's a great conversation, isn't it? Oh, it's a banger. It's a banger. The A word, the A word. It's just like, it's something that we hear from like loads of our community, don't we, about anxiety and grief and how it just feels like such a massive component of grief. And I know, Im, it's something that you have had for most of your life. And it's been a really big part of my journey as well. And Josh, what is amazing about him is he just really makes the topic so easy to understand doesn't he I had so I had a big realization in this conversation and that was how much I have what Josh calls um safety behaviors so I have all of these things in place to stop myself from feeling anxious because I'm so afraid of feeling anxious and it's actually like really crap. Like I don't even let myself enjoy a glass of wine because I feel anxious the next day. I don't drink caffeine because I feel anxious. If I drink caffeine, I won't even have like a fizzy drink because I'll feel anxious. It's just like so many things that I'm not doing. Like sure, those things probably aren't amazing for me anyway, but I don't even let myself enjoy it every so often, which I think is quite ridiculous just because I'm so afraid of how I'll feel. So I had a bit of homework from this episode and that was to go away and like have a glass of wine and just not worry about it. Like try not to think about it because I would just, I just stopped letting myself, I basically am sober now because I'm so afraid how, of how I feel. So yeah, I let myself have a glass of wine. How did I you did feel? feel? A little bit off. Like I did feel a little bit off the next day but I felt like I had a bit more control over myself going like, I know what's happening here. My, my amygdala is like trying to tell me that I'm not safe um, because of how I feel. Like Josh was saying how you get a bit of a dry mouth or, you know, you're a bit more tired, like those sorts of things. But I did it. I did it. <laughs> and I'm just going to like keep on, not keep on drinking, but just keep on exposing myself to things that I'm just fully avoiding in fear of feeling anxious. Because that's what he says works, right? You, you know, that is ultimately what you need to do is expose yourself to the things that are causing you to feel anxious. And that yeah. rewires your brain, it tells your brain, actually, there's nothing to be afraid of here. And bit by yeah. bit, it that's what really helped him, didn't it, move through his anxieties. So good on you for doing it. And I think you just got to sit with the uncomfort, haven't you? Like, yeah, it's going to feel like a bit strange or a bit uncomfortable, but the more you do it. So this is, yeah, I, I really love this chat and I really hope that it really helps people. And it's actually the last episode of the season. I could, like we've just, we've actually- Oh my God, it is. It is. I feel like we've reversed, we've reversed the way we normally do the intros because normally <laughs> we talk about us and what's been going on in Good Morning Land. But we've just jumped straight into Josh. Enough about Josh. More about us, please. Yeah. Um, hello. Hello. It's the oh last, yeah, last episode of the season and it's been a massive few months, hasn't it? 
fuck yes. The book. Yeah, can we just talk about that for a minute? Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. It's actually, yeah, it's been a full-on month. We'll obviously both delve into this, but I think my mental health has probably been the worst it's been since, like, the early months of mum dying. And it's been really hard. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Like I've been in a pretty bad way. Um, we talk about the stress jug and I think my stress jug was just overflowing with stress, all sorts of things happening in my life that have been contributing to the way that I feel, feeling really out of control. Like there's been some heavy things, but also things that nobody should have to go through, um, which I can't talk about yet, but it's been, it's been a very intense time, but I'm feeling a lot stronger, a lot better. And I'm, yeah, I can sit here and say, I think I'm over the worst of it this month. And I'm feeling, yeah, feeling a lot better than I was. Good. So there's hope. Good. Yeah. yeah I know it's been a really difficult um, couple of months for you. And it's, mm. I'm really pleased to hear that you're feeling a little bit better. But it's also okay to not be okay as well, you know? And I think that's the thing about grief, right? it comes in waves, the bombs, you know, they, they hit us and we think that we are at a certain, you know, point with it. And then it can, we can feel like we've just absolutely regressed when things happen in our lives or there's, you know, lots of stress and it's just being really gentle on yourself and just going with the flow. And I know that's what you've been doing and yeah, it ain't easy. So I um I'm really glad to hear that you're feeling a little bit better. Thanks, mate. And I think what's been helpful is knowing that I have crawled out of a really dark place before. Mm -hmm. I've been through some big shit and I've kind of come out the other side, but I've I've survived. And so now when I'm in that dark hole again, I know that I can survive. I know that there will be brighter days. I know that it won't always feel this heavy and I won't always feel this way. So I feel, I guess, yeah, confident now that I can get out of there a little bit quicker than mm -hmm. I thought I could. So, yeah, I'm here. Good. Yeah. And how are you? You've been good? I'm yeah I'm good um got lots going on with good morning so lots of really exciting things on the horizon guys we've got a course coming that we're developing with one of the leading psychotherapists in the grief and loss space so that's been keeping us busy and we've got some exciting plans for you guys which we will share more of soon but it's um it's going to really up the level of support that that we can give you guys so yeah lots of lots of things happening I feel like the next evolution of good morning is on its way isn't it oh I love that the next evolution of good morning yeah think connection think community um we are really ramping things up for you guys so we're so excited for also next season of the pod it might sound and look a little bit different um but we're super excited Started to bring it to you and um yeah just thanks everyone for tuning in this whole season we wouldn't be here without you guys we wouldn't be doing this without this incredible community um so we we love you guys and just thank you for all your support so far and your messages and your reviews and for buying our book and yeah you guys keep us going so just thank you huge thanks massive thanks guys we we love you guys so much and just um 
really appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this episode and that you've enjoyed this season as much as we have. Enough about us. Let's get into the A word with Anxiety Josh. It's really great to connect with you, Josh, because we've been following you for quite some time and we just really love the way you talk about anxiety. And we actually included you in our book because just... Oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, just really That's love so the way you make it so accessible. Yeah, yeah. I have, there's a lot of nonsense out there. Um, and so I'm very passionate about like, no, no, this is what we need to do. You know, you know this, is, this is what we need to learn about and um, to help and yeah. Thank you. I didn't, didn't realise that. So. Well, before we get stuck in, Josh, we'd love to hear about your personal experience with grief and anxiety and what led you to do the wonderful work that you do. Uh, interestingly, uh, I became, I first developed an anxiety disorder when I was in my young 20s and it was during looking after my little brother who was dying from cancer. I was 14, and that's when I started to actually develop anxiety disorder. He passed away two years later, and I overcame the anxiety disorder with education. Um, and then my dad died from motor neuron disease, which was grim as fuck. And that kind of exacerbated my anxiety again. And that's what brought me to this kind of, well, I used the unoriginal kind of stress jug analogy where it's like, you know, when a lot of shit happens in your life, including grief. Um, don't be surprised if your threat response starts going bananas because <laughs> it doesn't understand. And um, yeah, that's kind of what led me to do it. I used to be a teacher. Uh, and then I was like, no, nah. one, that's like 80 hour weeks for peanuts. And two, I, I, well, I studied to be a therapist and I really enjoyed it. So I could just do stuff like this. So yeah, yeah, that's that's my experience with grief. I am no stranger to it. Um, no, I've seen it pre-grief, during grief, seen some horrible shit. And but yeah, I like talking about it. Um, because why not? <laughs> well, there's no better podcast to to uh, talk about on. So there's that. So <laughs> you've been through a fair bit of grief by the sounds of it, and you know, it's a lot to go through as a teenager, too. You know, you're just trying to figure out the world, and then something so traumatic as losing your brother to cancer mm. at such a young age happens. It just throws you. I think you have to grow up really quickly, don't you? Yeah. I was, I was kind of forced to really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Particularly I was just, yeah. was one of his primary carers as well. So it was like, yeah. Um, but that always meant that, you know, you never put myself first and that's what kind of contributes to, to, to anxiety when you're constantly putting other people first and not putting yourself first. And it's like, Oh, you don't look yeah. after yourself. Your body will uh, remind you. Well, tell me more about that. Is that playing into not putting yourself first? Can that also be if you're like tendency to be a people pleaser? Can that also really exacerbate your anxiety sometimes? Yeah. So, I mean, anxiety literally is a threat response. So that's your fight, flight, freeze and fawn. Mm -hmm. If you're someone who finds it difficult to say no or put in boundaries or often people pleasing then that's your fawn response mm. people who are fawn with fawn responses usually not always but um they're usually people who have been maybe in an abusive relationship maybe their your parents have been really kind of unreasonable strict maybe you've grown up in a neglectful household maybe you've grown up in a household with conflict or been involved with conflict or maybe you're just bullied at school 
you know, that kind of thing where the brain learns that if I fawn and placate this person who could cause me a threat, then there's less chance of threat. Mm. And so these are the people that find it difficult to say no. Um, so I encourage in here to be like, it's okay, you can say no, we'll practice doing it now, you know. Mm. How Throw me did... a life jacket, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm really interested to know how did anxiety manifest for you? It first started, it will always change in, in different ways, but like, and I invite people to, you know, view it like a pick and mix, you know, so there's three different sections. Uh, you've got your, your thoughts. So it always begins with what if, what if, what if you got your feelings. Yeah. So it's like dread, doom, nervousness, terror, depends, you know, each person's different. Uh, and then you've got sensations. So it's like, uh, heart palpitations, um, chest pains, uh, derealization, uh, IBS, tension, dizziness, lightheadedness, can't catch my breath, stuff like that. And mine changed over the years, but it initially presented what really freaked me out the, the, the most was the, the derealization, depersonalization symptom. Uh, so that happened at work when I suddenly just didn't feel real. I was like, whoa, what's going on? And um, yeah, I dropped like a spoon. I was making like a cup of tea or something. Dropped a spoon. I looked up. I was like, whoa, what's going on here? And I looked around me. I was like, I feel like I'm in a dream world or something. Everything looked the same still. It just did. I just didn't feel connected to it. It's like looking at my hands. I could hear my voice, people's faces. like look like clay. I was like, well done, Josh. You've finally lost your mind. Uh, <laughs> it was going to come and it's today's the day. Um, and I didn't, I didn't even know the word anxiety at this point. I was like, well, I did. I just thought it meant, oh, I'm nervous about my exam. Um, and I was like, whoa, no, what I was actually having was a panic attack. Um, so then alongside that, I had racing thoughts, loads of those screaming what ifs. Uh, I couldn't quite catch my breath. I couldn't keep still. I was pacing around and I went home and didn't leave the house for a very long time. Um, yeah, that was, that's how it initially presented. But over time, you know, it can change and stuff. Like sometimes I, you know, fixate on, can't get a full breath. Um, or sometimes like I, it will just be a nervousness in the morning. You know, like, oh, mm. there's some morning anxiety there. Uh, sometimes it can just be headaches and tension, you know, with the general sense of unease. And sometimes it could just be, uh, oh my God, I'm having panic from from nowhere. So yeah, but in general, it can present in different ways and I invite people to kind of expect that if you're struggling with anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, oh, another one's like bright lights as well. Like going into supermarkets and bright lights and just, oh, sensitive. Yes, to, supermarkets. Oh, what is it? Well, I think it's yeah. those fluorescent lights, isn't it? I used to always have panic attacks in the supermarket. That was a place for me that I didn't want to go, yeah, but I did it loads anyway. Loads of people do. <laughs> yeah, lo yes, loads of people do. I, I have a theory. I think because supermarkets are so mundane um, and boring that the way we feel going into a supermarket with the lights and all that stuff is that it makes how we feel more incongruous and exacerbated so you know everyone's just like half asleep walking down the vegetable aisle or whatever and you feel in threat with the lights and the in fifth yeah. gear like some awful's gonna happen i think supermarkets exacerbate that a lot mm. also it's one of the most common places we go that isn't our house uh so uh, our homes and i think that's why it happens i had loads in the supermarket um now it, it just bores the life out of me <laughs> and josh i just want to take it back a little bit so you're talking about 
the first experience you had of anxiety. How old were you when that happened? I was always a worrier as a kid, mm. but it switched from kind of worry to anxiety disorder territory when I was 22. 22, yeah. okay. At that moment, actually, with with, with, the, with the spoon, when having like, the realisation, uh, what happened was I just had a panic attack, and it scared me so much that I mm. crafted and shaped my life around not experiencing panic again. So I made all the mistakes. So I was like, I was going around with little toolkits, like, you know, like rescue remedies and and water and sweets and magic items. I'm like, why? You know, all to avoid all this. I stopped drinking tea and caffeine. I stopped going far from my house. I'd Google for reassurance. I'd do that stupid thing where you put ice cubes on your wrist. Why? If you do oh, that, I haven't tried that one. Don't do it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'll write that one down. It's, I see oh it all gosh. over Instagram. It's, it's the what? It's the it's ridiculous. Uh, I'll tell you why later. Um, but yeah, just I was doing all those safety behaviors. Uh, I went to the doctor. I was given medication. Didn't agree with me. Uh, I'd spend hours looking at the medication box, you know, seeing, oh, oh is this going to have an effect? Am I going to have any side effects? Is it going to make me more crazy? Um, yeah, there was, there was loads of stuff like that. Um, until I finally kind of learned what was happening in my body, in my brain. I was like, oh, that makes sense. And learning how my behavior was keeping it there. You know, actually, actually I'm keeping this here. You know, it's not my fault that mm. it started, but I, what I'm doing is maintaining it. Um, yeah, and then that's that's kind of how I got out of it. So yeah, 22, and yeah, I kind of just really enjoyed learning about it, and then passion is just talking about it and, and teaching others. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that you were always labelled a warrior when you were a kid. Me too, and I think Im as well. And I have never been diagnosed with generalised anxiety disorder, but last year my anxiety came to a massive head and I had to really address it. And what I, through lots of therapy, I, what I think I realise now is I've always been anxious, but when I was growing up, you just you just get called a worrier, right? And I grew up in like the the nineties where there wasn't probably the, the term anxiety wasn't as commonly used as it is now. Do you think that for people like us, like we were anxious kids, but there just wasn't the terminology or the education around it? So you just get called a worrier, and then you don't realize what's going on for you when things like this happen, and you have panic attacks, and and you've got mm. debilitating anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I find it really helpful and something I'm passionate about. Um, when we discuss anxiety, you split it into two. You've got your conventional anxiety, which is I'm worrying about something external from me. I'm worrying about something that societally people can relate to because they can share a frame of reference with me. They can share a frame of empathy with me. Mm -hmm. So when you say, oh, I'm worried about an upcoming exam, almost everyone can relate to that oh i'm worried about a first date or a doctor's appointment almost everyone can relate to that it's anxiety it's anxiety that we all relate to i'm worried about my driving test remember mine uh you know I, i'm worried about all these things yeah that's anxiety you know um but it's the kind of anxiety that yeah you wouldn't necessarily feel that ashamed about talking about at a dinner table or whatever that's the first type of anxiety. The second type of anxiety is disordered inwards anxiety. So this is when we have 
panic attacks. This is when we have horrible intrusive thoughts about taboo stuff like violence, sexual stuff, whatever. When we have catastrophes played in our brains like really loudly in front of us over and over and over again. It's when we obsess about how we feel. We do everything to try to avoid feeling anxious. It's when we wake up with a sense of doom and dread that find, we find difficult to leave for the day. This is the inwards disordered anxiety stuff. Most kids don't have the second they're, they're, they're worriers but usually if you're a worrying kid you know there's that disposition that you could develop disordered anxiety when you when you're older um unless you've got like ocd which you can see in quite a lot of um, young kids um but but in general yeah it's learning about it is really important i think the only thing we can really get taught about anxiety when we're when we're younger is oh fight or flight but no one really it's never really mm. explained properly and uh, I think that's uh, would have been helpful for me anyway. I'd love to get into the physical uh, manifestations of anxiety and what's actually happening to our body. But I did want to ask you first. So when my anxiety kicked in, I was around 17. And I think I had that derealization feeling first where I was like, something doesn't feel quite right. Everything around me feels a bit foreign. And then it was that afternoon that I had my first major panic attack while I was driving the car and like my vision started going. I thought I was dying, you know, the whole thing. Um, And then I feel like it was almost like a switch went on inside me and I just couldn't go back to feeling normal again. And it lasted for years and years and years. And I was like, I'm never going to feel normal again. And when you say you've overcome anxiety, like I'd really like to know, can you feel completely like, I don't know. I just feel like I I don't go out and I'm not, not aware of how I feel or people around me or the birds or the noises. I'm just always like quite hyper alert and I'd really like to not be like that anymore. Like, can I go back to normal, <laughs> whatever normal yeah. is? 100%. Okay, amazing. That's someone who's did been you, there. Did you get three, that feeling? Three, four years. Like a switch? Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a fancy word yeah. for it. So that is, a de- that is the development of an anxiety disorder. It's called neuroception. So mm-hmm. when we say normal, it's when we're our, our bodies are in sympathetic, uh, parasympathetic nervous system state. And have you noticed that that switch, all it meant was that, you scare, I don't know, can, can I swear on this podcast? No. Yeah, go for it, yes. So basically, this is what I say to a lot of people, is it's like that switch, that neuroceptive switch, when anxiety disorder begins is when something scares you and you shit yourself so badly that your attention goes inwards and you start to use compulsions. So for the last few years, you or whatever it is, is that what keeps that anxiety and threat response on are small little compulsions and this is what happens to most people they feel mm. they're not themselves of course they're not the, the threat response is on when the, the, the restaurant with their friends and it's not it doesn't feel very nice but what doesn't help is that when we internally check how's my anxiety is it there yet i wonder if it presents here how's it now how is it compared to before i wonder if that symptom gets carried away i wonder if i pass out here i wonder if i have a panic attack in that room and this constant internal threat monitoring and rumination actually keeps us on and so the way out usually and particularly for grieving people as well because your threat Mm. response is going bananas um Mm. and it makes us feel very uncomfortable um if anyone's listening and you're like yeah that's me yeah you know that all that stress is kicked in and your threat response is trying to look after you Mm. it's very important that anxiety and that threat response is trying to look after you and has been doing and is even is today 
our job is to turn the threat response off by showing it, not by trying to forcefully switch it off with, and this is only my opinion, and as a therapist top of my field, I'm very passionate about it, not by magical thinking and breathing and, and, and things external from us, because that teaches the brain that you're dangerous and we want to get rid of you. It's by showing it with our behavior and recognizing, mm, yeah, I'm compulsively researching, I'm Googling, I'm asking for reassurance, I'm constantly scanning for my anxiety, I'm constantly trying to get rid of my anxiety, I'm looking for the next cure of anxiety, I'm walking out and can't leave my house without my benzos of that anxiety, I'm mm -hmm. upping this for my anxiety. And all this is signaling to the brain, the amygdala, that anxiety is dangerous and we hate you paradoxically and this is what i teach at the cornerstone of everything that i do it's not my idea it's actually from the works of sally winston and marty seif and david carbonell and people like that is that to feel normal again you've got to practice the um, the skill of willful tolerance so when we're anxious mm -hmm. it's like oh instead of going oh no not the anxiety go away piss off you're really annoying it's okay my threat response is trying to look after me now I need to show it, it needs to turn off. I'm going to practice willful tolerance. Okay, great. So I might be out with a friend and my attention wants to go inwards. So I'm like, no, we're definitely going to concentrate on this chat now. You know, it's going to be tough to concentrate. Mm -hmm. It's going to be tough to have the enthusiasm and the motivation. But I'm going to do it anyway. Over time, when you practice willful tolerance, particularly with generalized anxiety, particularly with fear of panic, uh, um, it will turn off and you will paradoxically find that you start to feel like yourself again but the irony of that is that you feel yourself again when you stop compulsively checking your anxiety so it'll be like two or three days and you'll be like oh i've not thought about my anxiety oh damn it i'm thinking about my anxiety then you fucking think about it again <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah 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 no but that that's a good thing yeah yeah that's yeah. a good thing if you okay. get there yeah <laughs> and josh at what point does anxiety become disordered when it dictates most of your day, when you avoid doing stuff that you usually would do, when you've got horrible intrusive thoughts that you've ruminated on for days and days, when you have when you're scared of symptoms like palpitations, when you're constantly seeking reassurance from other people or for Google, um, when you don't feel like your old self. Mm, I think it's one of the main ones. In grief, we can often just not feel like our old selves, right? Everything's changed. And like you said a moment ago, like we're living in fight or flight response a lot of the time. If you're feeling anxious and you're grieving, how do you know when it's like, oh, this is this is kind of normal for grief, like it's okay. And then is it when it leans into it's just impacting everything and it's completely like intrusive thoughts are taking over? Is that when you're like, right, I need I need help? So I don't know if it was in the UK, it was Mental Health Awareness Week last last week. And I, I love using the analogy of the stress jug, which is not original. You know, it's something like, I don't know, Dr. Julie or something like that does on TikTok and, uh, to represent a metaphor for stress, our ability to tolerate stress. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we all have a stress jug. Great. Uh, the size of your stress jug is dependent on genetics. So if your mom and dad are anxious, you're screwed. I said, you're not screwed. You just got less in there. So my mom and dad were anxious. So I'm like, mine's, oh. mine's a fucking thimble, mine is, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> we do, contrary to to belief, have a stress jug. Um, ours all sound like they're going to be small. 
<laughs> doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to develop an anxiety disorder, though. It just means that our ability to tolerate stress is less. So for me, you know, I was, I, I finished uni, I was broke, I was had a bit of a drug problem, I'd just come out of a, a relationship, I wasn't sleeping properly, probably not eating properly, probably doing these kind of things. My jug's filling up. Then there's other stuff in the jug as well, like unhelpful beliefs about masculinity, about emotions, blah, blah, blah. The jug's filling up. Uh, then my brother gets diagnosed with stage four liver cancer. The jug starts to fill up. And then I become a primary carer. Anyone who's a carer for someone or a loved one who's been through that, that's going to fill a lot of stress up in your jug. One day I was in, a, in work making a cup of tea and I dropped that spoon and that spoon was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's mm. back. That was that extra drop in the top of that jug that made it spill over. And that's when our threat response, my threat response, misinterpreted all that stress and goes, well, I don't understand why you're stressed because I'm a threat response that hasn't evolved for thousands of years. I don't understand these subjective stresses in this modern world. I don't know why you're stressed. But just in case, Josh, have a load of adrenaline and cortisol probably about a week's worth in about 10 minutes and that experience is going to feel really intense so i'm going to make you know you're going to probably feel a bit dissociated as well i obviously didn't know right. what was going on at the time i just shit myself i was like oh my god what's going on here but yeah grief has a massive part in the jug if you don't talk about grief and if you don't kind of address it then it holds a lot in there now, when I say to people, you know, the aim, if you're a perfectionist now, now you might be thinking, well, how do I empty the jug? Mm. Yeah, the aim is to empty the jug, but not all of it. It's impossible. You can't erase things like grief. You know, you can get rid of some of it. You can be at a place of peace with it. And I almost am. I never will be fully at peace, and you never can. And I miss mm. my brother because I loved him very much. Uh, and they find I feel him with me now and then, not in a spiritual. Maybe it's a spiritual. I don't know. I'm a grumpy oh, kid. Go for it. We're, we're a bit woo woo over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't. I know things. I'm very not woo woo, but there are moments where mm -hmm. I just like, oh, that'd be nice. And yeah. Uh, maybe yeah, just kind of feel you here or something. You know, a bit like I don't know, just laughing at a joke, whatever. And um, but yeah, that's okay. That's the best I can do probably for my jug, and that's okay. Same for people who have been like, you know, if you've gone through trauma or abuse or been attacked or whatever, you you can't completely erase that from your job, but you can do stuff to empty as much of it as you can. Mm -hmm. And you're allowed to do that and do that for yourself. Don't underestimate the impact of grief on, on that jug, though, and particularly if you don't like to talk about it. Me, I didn't talk about it at all at first. I used to just get pissed, uh, repress it, mm -hmm. and just do all the stupid stuff. But now it's like, no, I'll, I'll come talk about it on wonderful podcasts like this. I love that analogy. And I just want to touch on adrenaline for a hot minute. I love in your book how you talk about the whoosh, that feeling that you get, right, when the adrenaline, like, hits you and it's like a big wave through your body. Tell us about adrenaline and the role it plays. Yeah, so as part of the body's threat response, you know, the, the body releases a load of adrenaline to increase our heart rate so it gets blood to the main muscles quicker just in case we want to 
fight a bear or run away from a lion or something like that. Not, I mean, not that that's going to be helpful either. You can give you as much adrenaline as you want. I'm not going to be a bear in a fight, and I'm not going <laughs> to run away from a lion. In fact, I just refuse to run. I'm, like, I'm not running here. You know, it's <laughs> and um, but it's it's part of that. It also makes us hyper aware for threats. So if you notice when you're anxious, you're super sensitive to things external mm. and internal. So lights maybe feel brighter. You maybe you're sensitive to people's reactions around you. Maybe you're kind of on edge. Maybe you're kind of ooh, you know ready, to, you know to, to to approach threat uh, instantly. Yeah, that's the adrenaline. It's doing that. Um, it's preparing you just in case the disaster happens. Um, for people who like roller coasters and you go over and the adrenaline of going up and down and up and down, people love that. You know, um, because it's playing with that adrenaline response. But imagine having that feeling, you know, a, a thousand foot drop off down a roller coaster, but then you stood, you know, <laughs> queuing up at a restaurant to chill out with a friend. It's a really incongruous, juxtaposing feeling when you're about to, you know, and then you don't feel hungry or because you know, imagine eating mm. pad thai on a on a roller coaster. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, <laughs> your appetite wouldn't be there, and that's what kind of anxieties and stuff and and so for people with with anxiety and doing that stuff they've got to sit with adrenaline and do these difficult things and they're not going to feel like themselves because it feels like they're on a roller coaster or there's a gun to their head or a pride of lions are about to eat them mm. i feel like i'd go pad thai any, anywhere though wouldn't i sal you actually would <laughs> like i wouldn't put it and you do love roller coasters so i feel like this could be quite a good challenge for you i'm gonna try it i just jump back Josh because you were talking about the toolkit that you were carrying around with you when you didn't really know much about anxiety and you were talking about having your rescue remedy and everything like that and the ice cubes on the wrist which I need to now google after this chat but um what like what are the misconceptions about what we need to do when we're feeling anxious and what really helped you uh great question um as a therapist trained in in many modalities, what I really love for anxiety is um, third wave cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and that really helped me, the psychoeducation side of it. So anxiety is just a threat response. Let's say growing up, you were bitten by a dog. Your mm -hmm. threat response, your amygdala in your brain will remember that. So next time you see a dog, it will warn you with adrenaline and all the funky symptoms and doubt that hey there's a dog you could be in danger so you develop a kind of phobia of dogs now that phobia doesn't have to be there forever and through gentle exposure and this happened to my friend max when i was a kid through gentle exposure to dogs sounds of dogs stroking a little dog getting a big dog eventually owning a dog you can switch that threat response off it will rewire itself so dogs are no longer a phobia, you know, and this happens to almost all fears. When you're talking about conventional anxiety and disordered anxiety, we actually develop a fear of the anxiety itself. So when mm. you asked before, like, oh, when Imogen was like, um, do I ever feel normal again? It's because you fear anxiety itself and it's a maintaining cycle. So for me, it was really important when I got better to realize that the dog is now 
the symptoms of anxiety that I do not like. And I'm trying to get rid of it because anxiety is uncomfortable and it doesn't, you don't feel like our usual selves, but it's not dangerous. So when you behave like it's dangerous, it stays on. Now, this is where people get it wrong. And this is where I went wrong for many years. Um, We start to use safety behaviors. And when we use a safety behavior, we signal to the amygdala that anxiety is in some way dangerous. So this is when a noise, when you have a panic attack, I am very passionate to, to tell people, don't do anything. A panic attack is just an adrenaline rush. Just do your best to get through it. It will pass. You don't need to do anything. There's no magical stuff that it can't hurt you. No one's ever died from a panic attack. It's just super uncomfortable. I know I've had hundreds. Um, but when you try to get rid of anxiety, you're signaling to the brain, this is dangerous. So oh, I need to run and get a brown paper bag. Well, the brain and the amygdala is remembering that this is dangerous. Oh, I'm in a meeting. I need to leave the room. Well, that's the flight part of fight or flight. So you've just thanked the threat response and it thinks that anxiety is dangerous. If you, if I go home and ruminate about a conversation I had with a colleague and I might've embarrassed myself, then you're thanking the threat response because it thinks, oh my God, see, I was helpful there. If I'm in the supermarket and I start to feel anxiety and I get ice cubes and put them on my wrist, okay, let's say that does calm me down. One, I've signaled to the brain that anxiety is dangerous. Two, I've just taught the brain that I can't function without ice cubes and safety objects. Maybe I'm going for a walk in the woods, but I won't do it without my safe person or my mobile phone. Well, I've just signaled to the brain that this is dangerous. Maybe I won't leave the house just in case of a panic attack. Well, I'm definitely signaling that, that, that this is dangerous. This, these are the mistakes that I was making. Every time I felt like a little twinge in my body, well, run and Google it for reassurance. Well, actually, I'm signaling that this brain, this response is dangerous. When you do nothing or do the opposite even and go, right, I feel doubt now and I understand this. Doubt is what's made us the most powerful predator in the world and in existence because we doubt we can we can plan around attacks, look out for lions like a meerkat, go through the jungles, look out for snakes, look at you know prepare for cave, bears jumping out of caves. That's great. That response is misfiring at the moment, so I'm not going to thank it. I'm going to do the opposite. That was the way out for me, and it makes so much sense because you rewire the brain, you rewire the amygdala. The dog is no longer scary. Is it easier said than done? Absolutely. Um, but you can make progress a little bit at a time, um, mm. particularly with exposure. So a lot of it, yeah, that's, that's for me, really passionate about it. That's why I do what I do. Well, you're very good at distilling and explaining anxiety and just making it really easy to understand what's going on. So thank you. I feel like this is just such an enlightening conversation because quite often I think with anxiety, it's really hard to know what's going on and you might google it or you might read some books around it but actually it kind of it can still feel quite confusing so the way that you've just explained that is so helpful so thank you I think people are going to be really um really inspired to help themselves listening to this don't you Im? I I remember Coming across your Instagram account, I think I think you introduced me to Josh Sal, and, yes. and I was at the peak of my driving anxiety, and I was so afraid of fucking freeways. I started to do the safety 
things, you know, like, oh, I'd rather just drive on local roads or get a train because I'm going to feel anxious. I started doing all those fucking things. And then I came across your Instagram and you had a post all about driving anxiety. And I was like, oh my God, it's a thing. I thought it was just me. I thought I was going mad. And then I loved your movement on Instagram, which is the hashtag did it anyway, which is all about your exposure therapy and how important it is to just do it anyway and not let it Mm. win. And um, I am so proud to say I overcame my driving anxiety all thanks to you. So yeah, it was massive for me to to hear about exposure therapy. (laughs) it was just so validating like (laughs) Mm. yeah it's 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 interesting yeah well done see you did the hard thing it's 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 brave to do that i've got to go and do this without safety behaviors you know because i had a driving anxiety for years i wouldn't go in the like it started off little like i wouldn't go in the fast lane of the freeway uh i would avoid certain roads um i wouldn't go a certain place far away from my house and stuff like that um i'd have like the window down even though it was cold you know just things like that um taking away tunnels? These little did bit you hate tunnels yeah bridges tunnels oh, um, tunnels are the worst and then out of intrusive thoughts like what if i lose control and yeah mm-hmm. and um no just to, but when i say safety behaviors if you're feeling like that's too overwhelming to do all that at once just take one away and practice then take another mm-hmm. one away and build up that's just as cool too you know what i mentioned before about my friend max and the dog you know he didn't just go and ride atop a doberman and, and ride off into the sunset you know, he started a little bit of time looking at like pictures of dogs and stuff like that and um and then like listening to dogs and standing in the park and observing them from afar all this is really helpful to rewire the threat response and it's important not to be like, because no one's going to be motivated to be like, right, just go expose yourself to something that you're scared of. What you're practicing, again, is that I'm, I'm, there's a purpose to this. I am practicing the willful tolerance of uncertainty. I am practicing turning my threat response off, my amygdala off. The only way you can turn off the amygdala is to show it. You have to show it that this isn't dangerous. So when the amygdala is activated, it opens up. Imagine like a clam or an oyster or something like ding. And um, it's open and it's primed for rewiring. Then it's watching your behavior. So if you're there still, if you're sat behind the wheel do, do it with driving anxiety and you're feeling all the effects, the what ifs, the scary what ifs, the racing thoughts, the palpitations, the derealization, all that kicking off, the dread, the doom, the feeling like something awful is going to happen. That's yeah. your amygdala that's opened up. It's then watching. So if you run away and feel better, the amygdala closes again, like, done my job, threat over. If you just stay there and the amygdala's open and you're like, nah, I'm, I ain't leaving, you can leave first. The amygdala eventually calms down. It rewires itself. The adrenaline passes because the body cannot produce a, an infinite amount of adrenaline. In fact, it can only maintain itself for 10, 20 minutes. Uh, the cortisol passes, you start to yawn, you start to feel tired, but you start to feel calm. And if you've not left the situation, and when that kicks in, you have rewired, literally rewired your brain in about 20, 30 minutes. Now, Amazing. you might have to do it a few times to, to rewire it a few more times. But yeah. Now, for me, I've got phobia. I don't really like flying, but I'll get there. I wouldn't even go to near the airport. So I just started, drove to the airport, sat and watched some planes for a bit. Now I'm car- I've taught the brain that that's okay. Then the next bit was to go inside the airport or whatever, and I can do that now. 
And the next bit is go, um, I did actually get on a, did a short flight again. I cheated a bit and I had a couple of beers. So I was a bit like, hmm, who got the credit there, Josh? The beers, <laughs> not me. Definitely the beers. A lot of people do. Yeah, so now I'm going to practice doing that. But then I realized actually it's quite claustrophobia. So I'm going to practice being in small spaces and stuff um, and, and wire it a bit at a time. It doesn't matter. And I'm a, an anxiety expert. I have my own vices and stuff and uh, I practice what I preach. Mm. Um, the reason I've done it yet is because it's scary, isn't it? So uh, obviously I'm busy. <laughs> so, so, but yeah, I'll, 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 I'll be doing the I'll be doing these things, and um, I, I recommend everyone do it as well. So I love the did it anyway stuff. I'm still doing mine. It's fun, um, but yeah, it's tricky. Is it like almost then like standing up to your amygdala in a way, like you know? I'm not going <laughs> to let you win. Yeah, squaring up yeah. to it. No, <laughs> it's parlaying with it. It's being like. It's trying to look after you. It's like a protective older sibling mm. it getting involved. But because it's become disordered because of stress, which may include grief, stuff like mm. that, it's misfiring. So mm. you you don't ever want your amygdala to switch off. It's there just in case. And it's if without it, we'd be dead. But at the moment, it's a bit like you're misfiring here, mate. You know, can you just calm down a bit? Just tone it down a little bit. You know, if I'm actually in danger, that's great. Let us know. But, you know, I don't want you firing off when I'm trying to watch TV. I don't want you firing off when I'm out with my friend. I don't need you firing off here. You know, and that's, yeah, I'll show you that. Interestingly, well, you have to show it because your talky cognitive brain isn't wired to it. it so there's only a one-way wiring circuit from the amygdala to our thinking brain. So when you feel scared and have these what-ifs and images, that's the image, that's the amygdala firing stuff to the thinking brain. But when people like, oh no, people say, oh, calm down, amygdala. You're not now here. It's not listening. There's no wiring from your talking brain to stuff like that. And so I you know lots of mantras and stuff don't really help for anxiety. Is it okay to talk to yourself through it? Pump yourself up, like, oh, come on, right? Okay, this is just the amygdala. It's, it's kicking off. It's just firing loads of adrenaline cortisol. I've got this. I can do it. You know, I'm not trying to turn it off. I can tolerate this. What am I remind remind myself? I I'm going to practice willful tolerance of anxiety right now. Mm. Um, yeah, that's super helpful. But in general, yeah, that that's how it works. And I had to do that because I've just tried every hack, shortcut, miracle cure under the sun. You know, gargling CBD oil and doing this and tapping and doing all these kind of things. I'm like, no, I just got to do the hard work, and it it's pretty quick. Once, once you kind of, it, you've got to be brave and courageous, but it's worth it. Yeah, it's so interesting that you said that, that you tried all the things, because I have as well. I mean, I've had anxiety for like over 10 years. And that is the one thing that truly helped, which was just talking to myself going, this is what's physically going on in my body right now. That's the reason why I feel the way that I feel and just write it out. And that is literally the thing that helped me drive on a freeway again, was just talking to myself. I, f I used to find when I tried to do the breathing, I'd feel more anxious. Is that, did you, oh, did you feel the same? Like, oh. yeah, I'd be like, oh, just I'm not doing it. And then I'm like breath. panicking. Yeah, it actually made me more anxious doing that. Yeah, I hate that because it's, it's just focus on your breathing. Yeah, focusing that my breathing <laughs> is shit. But I'm dying. I'm not breathing properly. Yeah. You know, I've got air hunger. I can't quite get a full breath. Just focus on it. Why? 
that's awful advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you put it like that, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, you mentioned earlier about alcohol, Josh, um, and you know you were on the flight and having a couple of beers when you took that short flight, and would love to know as someone who has recovered from anxiety, what is your relationship with alcohol now? And if you do drink. Like, do you find it makes you anxious at all? Like, how do you manage alcohol and anxiety? Um, I'm very passionate in my practice when I work with clients. The aim here is to do what non-anxious you would do. Now, in the wellness sphere, in popular popular wellness sphere and all this stuff, you know, alcohol is bad for you. Yeah, we're all adults. We know that. I know when I have a glass mm. of wine that I, this is bad for me but I'm chilling out and it's nice. Am I doing it to feel less anxious? No. Am I doing it to kind of just ease maybe on a Friday after work just to chill out? Yeah, because I'm doing it because I want to. It's, I enjoy it, you know? Don't get me wrong. I use it as a crutch on the flight. I'm very aware and being very open and honest about that. But in general, no, I, I, I like a beer and a wine now. I do it because non-anxious me likes that. It, it pre-anxious Do you get anxiety? Like, do you get that feeling like that dread? Cause that I literally avoid drinking now because I don't like the way I feel the next day. So it's like, like I so can't even go out and enjoy a glass of wine. I'm telling myself, <laughs> tell me help. Cause I want to enjoy a glass of wine or a coffee. I haven't drunk caffeine in years because I'm afraid of how it makes me feel. I literally, I should uh, come and see you as yeah, a yeah. client. So you, so, so you have like <laughs> kind of like panic disorder light, I call it where panic disorder is like, okay. I'll avoid doing anything that makes me feel panicky um yeah so caffeine can mimic the symptoms of anxiety doesn't equal anxiety it can mimic the symptoms of anxiety as do hangovers so dry mouth a bit headachey a bit feeling dissociated when you're hung over now remember when i said the amygdala's watching so when you choose to drink avoid coffee you've just signaled to the brain thank you amygdala for looking after me a good exposure I love to, I drink coffee and I, I used to know boy coffee and all that. I love coffee and and stuff like that. Is that your exposure plan? Should you choose to take it as a, get a caffeinated fizzy drink that has less ca caffeine and start drinking I wouldn't a bit dare. at a time? I wouldn't dare. No. Why? Why? Because <laughs> no, you're afraid so of anxiety. Afraid of yes. Yeah. That's the whole point. But this is the exposure. So you're teaching yeah. yourself it's okay. It's nothing bad's happening to you. You just don't like the discomfort that it gives you. But okay. what's amazing and I highly recommend doing this, is that once you sit with the discomfort to 20, 30 minutes, it passes and the brain rewires itself. So the next drink you have, it's like, oh, you know, when people say they have anxiety, you know, anxiety for conventional anxiety is, oh, I feel anxious and grim. People with anxiety disorders and panic disorder light, it's when I'm hungover, I internally threat monitor. I obsess about how I feel. I'm worried that the anxiety is going to come back. Um, I don't like how it makes me feel. Um, no, then absolutely. You know, uh, I've set I've set homework in my practice. Go and have three beers tonight. What? My therapist is Let's telling me to go drink three sell. beers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Next minute, Im's on a bender. Yeah, I've got of alcohol to make up for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're so afraid of anxiety, so you have a phobia of anxiety. So practice being anxious a bit at a time. And that's why And in here, we'll, we'll make a little half a cup of tea and drink it together. It's called interoceptive exposure. It's part of CBT. Um, and it works. It literally works. I literally like 
I must must be such an anxious freak. Like I don't even drink tea because of how it makes me feel. Like no, that's cool. What's wrong it's, with it's, me? It's panic disorder. You have a fear, a fear of fear. Severe. I will Would avoid you sound drinking severe? tea. No, like, is it severe panic disorder. Mm. Severe is you can't is eat, sleep, drink, whatever, whatever. You you, okay. you will tolerate anxiety to a point, but you like to control everything so you don't feel as anxious. You've already started with your exposures. You managed to get in a car and drive. You did it anyway. Well done. How do you feel yeah. now about driving? A bit more confident. Yeah, loads more confident, and just yeah, I feel same like applies I to it. caffeine. I'm like, yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, same applies to caffeine. Uh, do yeah. that but the, the whole point is to be anxious so don't be like you know mm. i'm practicing being anxious now it will pass <laughs> it always does uh that's it but you're like, oh no i don't want to feel like that and that's why you stay there that's all i did i used to mine was so extreme I, i'd look at packets of paracetamol or ibuprofen stuff that i've had all my life anyway painkillers and i check the ingredients just in case there's caffeine in it like, Sounds like someone on. I know. Um... <laughs> come on, man. Sort it out. You yeah, feel yeah, seen. Yeah. You, have you ever like <laughs> had neurofin and then have to go back and check the packet to make sure that it was actually neurofin that you took because you're scared you've taken something else? I do that all the time. I'm like, just my make sure that it was, was actually neurofin. My anxiety was so bad. I was sat in an empty pub with my friend and I had a beer and I went to the toilet, came back and was convinced my beer was spiked. Oh, wow. yeah, Almost all the time. Impact. No, normal. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I do that stuff Actually, all the it's because I fear fear. I, I, it, it is, will this drink make me feel horrible and, and, and not myself? And it always ends up at, what if I panic and lose control? But you never yeah. do. You can't lose control and practice with that. Something. I feel so seen. <laughs> Something that I want to <laughs> touch no on. there's no hope. Yeah. yeah. There's, loads of hope. <laughs> there's so much hope. It's your behavior that's keeping you anxious. It's your behavior that keeps yeah. you there. There yeah. you go, Im. It's coffee for you tomorrow morning, mate. Oh, I'm on you. the drinks tonight. I'm yeah. getting on the wines, the coffee. Shots all round. Yeah. Um, oh, if you want a good exposure, get hungover and then drink a coffee on a hangover. There oh, you Jesus. go, Im. That's, that's your challenge for this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> and Josh, something yeah. that Im and I both experienced after our mums died suddenly and we know it's something a lot of our listeners many who are grieving also experience is the anxiety of something else is going to happen and when like for me when my husband didn't answer the phone I was like that's it he's dead as well like and just worst case scenario catastrophic thinking and that can be I think really common when you've lost someone or something traumatic has happened how can we help ourselves and why do we catastrophize? I mean, my first piece of advice for that is just go easy on yourself. Like your, your, your anxiety or catastrophe will do that. It remembers something awful that happened. Mm. You know, you can't get rid of that out of your memory. I have that too. I'm not in a perfect place with that. Sometimes mm -hmm. I get triggered in a weird way. Someone who reminds me of my brother or my dad. Yeah, my threat response, again, like that older sibling wants to come in and be like, any, any problem here? Compassion and, and, and kindness for yourself, and particularly in people who are grieving because they feel guilty, they got survivor guilt, they feel like they could have done more. There was stuff that was unsaid things and left in a way that wasn't do all that. You particularly got to be kind and compassionate. 
also to your, just to yourself, just be like, okay, this makes sense why my brain would catastrophize this. I've been through something traumatic and horrible, broke my heart, shattered it. Mm-hmm. It's expected that my threat response would suggest this to me when someone doesn't answer the phone. When I've watched the news this morning and saw all this horrible thing happening. Yeah, I still get that. It's what I do to react to it that's really important. Mm. Um, yeah, you just get those pangs, don't you? Like, honestly, awful's happened to them, you know? Mm-hmm. If you take a really kind of stoic view of it, and I remind myself of this, um, you already know bad things happen in life, mm. but a lot of that kind of anxiety surrounding that type of grief is that, what if I don't cope? What if that pushed me to the edge and then something else bad happening pushes mm-hmm. me to a point where I don't think I can cope anymore? Mm-hmm. Uh, you will cope. Can you? Humans have a remarkable ability to habituate to these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and just know that you, you can do it. You just be kind. It's okay. Of course my brain's doing this. And it's happening for millions and millions and millions. You're not weird. And doing these things, it just, just, it just happens. Yeah, it happens to me. I mean, it's annoying when I'm trying to bloody enjoy myself. You know, I'm at a gig or whatever. I'm like, hey, this is oh, oh, <laughs> you know, what if my loved one's in trouble? I'm like, oh, damn it. You know? I'm not gonna cope. Just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, not gonna cope. You will. Mm. You know, you will, and you can. Um, I'm not saying mm. prepare for the worst. Go lean into probability. Mm, they're probably just fine, but. I can see why my brain is suggesting this to me because I know how horrible that feels, even though it's incredibly unlikely, you know? Um, but yeah, I just don't usually engage with it because I'm like, it's there, you feel it, it passes. You start mm-hmm. engaging with it and doing things like, and this again, this is where the, the behaviors come in. If every time you have a pang of doubt that someone's in trouble, even though you just saw them 10 minutes ago and they're fine, and you go run out the room and ring them, Mm. don't be surprised if you get that the next time you go out the next time you go out because you're thanking the amygdala and the threat response again and again and again try and be sit with uncertainty for a bit i actually mm. had this the other day i was at a gig and i was worried about my partner because she felt a bit dizzy and was a bit and, and sweating and stuff for i went out so i had the thought mm, i wonder if she's having a heart attack or a stroke or something like that and i was like oh that's really horrible and i was it took me out of the gig and i thought hold on the odds of that happening 10, 20 minutes ago, no. Will I check in with my partner? Yeah, but I'm not going to do it in the immediacy of this threat response. I'm going to do it after 10 minutes when it's passed. And I did, and I just text. She was like, yeah, I'm fine. It's all good. Not dead. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. if I'd have done it in the immediacy, then I'd have started this chain of kind of compulsive reassurance seeking, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. Makes total sense. Mm. So really, it's just just sitting with this discomfort and riding it out, but not acting on anything. Because if you act on the text or the calling them to check they're not dead, or you're just going to let your brain know yeah. that that's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You just thanked it. So don't yeah. be surprised the next time you go out and it happens again, because it thinks it's being helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, that this people would realize with, with anxiety and the uncertainty, that feeling will pass without you doing anything. Mm. everyone thinks this feeling can only pass when i do something no that's one of the biggest mysteries it's like you don't have to 
it will just pass. It really does. Um, but obviously, we don't like how it feels. So we're like, oh, just tell me this, tell me that. And if you have someone who has obsessive compulsive tendencies or literally OCD, um, you'll know how acute that cycle can feel. Wow. This conversation has absolutely delivered. We, we were so looking forward to talking to you, Josh. Um, we love your work and I've got a lot to process. And I think we're going to go do some, a bit of exposure therapy tonight. I might have a glass of wine. What I'll a check great back start. in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got to enjoy a glass of wine because I've not been letting myself. And it's just wild. Oh, I'm so excited for this conversation and for our listeners to hear all this. Excellent. Excellent. So Remember your two golden rules. Do 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 what non-anxious you would do. And I don't even know what I'm doing yeah, right now. Distant yeah, memory. I don't even know. Yeah. I hear that. I hear that <laughs> quite a lot. So we get a, we get a pen and paper and like write down your ideal day. Okay. Right now, go do it. <laughs> so I love good. that. Yes, yeah. Im. I'm lo- I'm looking forward to hearing how your weekend goes with your with your wine and your coffee, Im. And Josh, thank <laughs> you. Yeah. Thank you You're so much. Have an espresso martini. Oh yes, <laughs> just really fuck yourself up. Just go for yeah. it. <laughs> Josh, thank you so much for your time. This has just been so educational, such a treat. I feel like you've explained things for us and our listeners in a way that is so accessible and easy to understand. So thank you for everything that you do. And before we go, where can people find you? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, uh, I'm Anxiety Josh. Uh, my mum didn't give me that name at birth. That would be quite <laughs> foretelling, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah, Anxiety Josh or Joshua Fletcher. Um, just find me on Google. I've got books and podcasts and social media content and stuff. Uh, or the website is schoolofanxiety.com, um, which is like Hogwarts, but for anxious people. no one leaves their rooms and everyone's (laughs) having panic attacks um but but yeah no thank you for having me on that was it was a lovely lovely podcast and i've never really spoken about like my grief that's in such a safe and compassionate way with you guys live on a podcast anyway so thank you very much as always a huge thanks for tuning in guys We really hope that you enjoyed listening to this episode. And before we go, we have a little favor to ask. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcast as it really helps other grievers find us too. Until next time. 